want you to imagine being Winston Churchill two years after his triumph in World War II. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves as if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years. Men will still say, this was their finest hour. He's prime minister, but they have a vote and he gets elected out. And here's what he wrote. Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. He was right, and the proof is that there's millions of people around the world who are on the move to escape regimes and autocratic governments in favor of the freedom of democracy. We have it so good here, and I often wonder why we take so many things for granted. It's why sometimes I reach out to people around the world to hear their stories, the circumstances they must overcome, their resilience and perseverance that they have to show to even survive, and more importantly, when they do the insights, their appreciation for life, how every breath matters more to them. My guest today has seen humanity its worst, and the life he was offered as a child is such that I would say most, if not many, would have simply given up and surrendered to his realities. But he didn't. As a young boy in the South Sudanese village of Lokoran, I was always running. Nothing could slow me down. After many years of traveling, reading, and learning, I understand that the sort of long-term poverty I was born into is not inevitable for anyone. We are in control of our own journey. He chose a path in life to better other lives. And that path was never easy. A gifted student at age 12 was denied an education because they couldn't afford it. Captured and tortured, but he went on to become one of Africa's most influential doctors. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. His name is Manuel Talbin, and this is his amazing story. Dr. Talbin, welcome. Thank you, thank you, Tony. Thank you for for the viewers and listeners out there. Yes, it's so beautiful. Now, you often describe your life as an amazing mountain climb. Let's start at the bottom of yours. You were born in South Sudan in 1977. At that time, you're six years old, and the second civil war has just broken out, just a decade after the first one ended. Growing up surrounded by such violence and destruction, how did a young child like yourself just contextualize what life was about, or was it simply this was life? Well, I think if you grow up in a violent environment where brutality, violence is normal way of life, that become normal. You seeing people turning against each other, women beaten, men kill, boys shoot each other, it become normal way of life. And that was my life, and I thought perhaps everybody in the world actually living the same way of life, hostility. And for me, that was how I grew up. And that was really, for me, I, I didn't know any better. And yet when I read about what you wrote, when you, when you talk about your home, you know, made out of mud, you shared it with very few resources, six siblings, your father was rarely around, but you also say it was a time also of joy and loving. 
how's that possible? Because to mostly people in my country, they couldn't imagine any joy living the way you did. Well, I think I think I was born into those circumstances. So those circumstances was a way of my life. I was only that's what I was exposed to. So for me, it was normal. So it cannot be something that is very peculiar for somebody who's living in those conditions. I mean, I didn't know any better that there's something called toilet out there. I didn't know there was a telephone. I didn't know there is better life out there. So for me, it was a way of life. So I have lived my life that way. We have when we didn't have toilets, we didn't have clean water, we didn't have the facility, but that was normal. Do you think nowadays that there's the internet and people all over the world can peer into lives all over the world? Is that changing because people are going, how come they haven't and I don't? Well, I, I, think, I think the reality is that majority of people in South Sudan have no access to internet. Uh, and of course, majority of people are still illiterate. So that means they will not really see what's happening in the rest of the world. And if they happen, of course, then, then the thinking is that, remember, for you to be able to, to figure out that the rest of the world has moved on, you must have some curiosity in you. And I always say the problem that as a child, you always have curiosity. But when Africans become adults, they lose their curiosity to say that my life is not better than the rest of the world. Then we tend to fall into, the, into what we call helplessness. We end accepting things that are very inhuman as being normal. And at school, you're quite a gifted student. What I understand is that people were really quite impressed at how quick you pick things up. Yet at age 12, you were no longer allowed to go to school. So take us through that early days of you learning and falling in love with and your curiosity. And then what happened where that was suddenly taken away? I really love school. School kind of given me kind of new kind of energy, happiness in life. And I always enjoy going to school, being competitive, listening to the teacher, and of course, learning new things. And that was for me was my childhood's curiosity. But of course, when the school was closed, I was left with nothing. And we, we grew up in South Sudan. It's not like in Canada where you have toys, where you have been playing field. In South Sudan, you have none of the above. There's no stimulation. As a result, you get exposed to the violence and brutality and being witness things that you shouldn't be witnessing as a child because that joy of the school was removed out of you. And that's for me, it was, it was difficult. And, and, and I, I mean, I enjoy reading, but even there was no books to read. You could only read what was the teacher giving you. And that time, of course, there was no internet. There's no other facilities. And for me, that was, I don't know. I, but the sad reality is that I, I, as I speak to you today, 60% of the children in South Sudan are exactly exposed to those crude circumstances that I find myself in. And how did you go from being in school, reading what the teacher gave you, opening your minds to possibilities and dreams, to suddenly having that door closed. Do you think that you were at a disadvantage because you might have seen more through your learning than others that really didn't embrace and love school the way you did? I, I think, yes, that definitely played a key role because I think when this, uh, the school was shut down, of course, I was hungry for learning. I didn't have so many, I, I mean, I didn't have parents, so I was really hungry for learning. And I always say that if, you, if I was born in Canada, I could have been a different part of my life because I could have given, I could have got all the opportunity and become the best that I could have been. But because of those uh, those gaps, that uh, that uh, deprivation from the school at that time because of war disruption, and I think infected me very badly. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman. 
Presented by RBC. And of course, that time I was really young. I was naive. And I thought that I could walk throughout back to Juba about 1,600 kilometers. Because for me in life, when you have to go, you have to go. The distance should not actually prevent you from about where you want to reach your destination. Joining me on Chatter That Matters is Dr. Emmanuel Taban. Tortured as a child, instead of becoming a victim, he chooses a life of healing. So you grew up surrounded by war and brutality, and you're captured. Take my listeners, because I really want to portray just how far you've come in becoming one of the most influential people in Africa. What was it like at such a young age to be imprisoned and to know that, you know, you're this toy that these torturers can play with? You know, I, I still have a really clear memory about what happened that particular day. I remember when I got locked up in prison, the first time that you get tortured, you cry, you cry your heart out, you roll around, you cry, and they never leave you alone. But as time goes on, your body tends to accept that everything is normal. The pain becomes lesser. And of course, toward the end, when they torture you, I hardly cry. I just look at them. My tears were all gone. They're all dry out. And I remember that pain, that hatred. When I look at those people in the eye, I was having anger inside me. I wish I was big at something that could actually fight back. But I didn't have that opportunity, except to find a way how to escape it. And did you ever think that you would get out of there? I mean, when you're in that kind of situation, I remember reading stories of people in prison, and some people would die right away because they lost their sense of meaning and their appetite for life, while others refused to give up. I mean, and I can't imagine being a person that continues to dream in that situation. Like how, did, how did you keep going, and what allowed you to escape and find your freedom? Number one, I kept my faith as a Christian. I was praying and also at the same time trying to find a way how to escape those predicaments. And I start, of course, befriending the, 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 the captains I remember in the prison and try to understand why really that cruelty, hatred toward me. Was it because me being a South Sudanese or is it because I've been a Christian? And sooner or later, I think something told me Perhaps if I could change my religion, could help me. And immediately I switched, I said, you know what, I'm actually a Muslim. I was turned to Christian because of my parent, my mother. And they, that seemed to lighten their, their, their spirit up. And they said, but why are you here? Then I said, yes, I want to learn to become a, a, an Islam. And that's when I escaped. So sometimes in life that you'll find yourself where the doors are all closed. But sometimes there's a way out. And that was the only way that I escaped. Without that, I don't think I could have come out alive. And I, by this time, I could have been history. I would not have been making it anyway if I didn't switch to, 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 to Islam. And you escape, but you escape in a place that you know very little about. How old are you at the time? And again, how did you come to terms with once again being in a place without anything that working to your advantage? You know, when you escape, because I knew very well when I escaped from the Kalwa, I knew that if they caught me, they will eventually kill me because they didn't want the Western media to find out that they actually were taking kidnapping South Sudanese boys and converting to Islam by force. And what I need to do was to run as fast as I could and of course all that running across and I did run of course for as fast as I could for three days. And that's when I found myself in Eritrea with my leg painful, swollen, and the crack, I couldn't really walk. But there was a hope 
despite all my suffering, I've now discovered new, new, new place, which was different from where I was born, where I grew up, where the housing seemed better, there's a water, there's toilet, the circumstance changed. So completely I was filled with different kind of euphoria. And I thought like, and that's when of course my eye get open saying, but what the hell was happening in South Sudan? Did the God actually hate us so much? Or there's something more than that. And how did you reconcile that when you're thinking about it? Did you blame it on, you know, divine intervention that you were just punished that way? Or did you start coming to terms with just how evil humanity can be to each other? Or is it at an age you couldn't yet quite come to terms with that? I think at the beginning, I always think that God didn't like Africans because Africans are forever suffering. We live in horrible, horrendous conditions and we always depend on the, on the World Food Program and everything. And I thought they the country is dry, there's nothing. But of course, now I see the perspective different that actually God has done his part in Africa. They've given us a beautiful land with highly fertile, with a lot of resources. But our deep, biggest problems is that, of course, we don't have the skills. We don't know how to, to do things for ourselves. Education in Africa arrived too late. And that's, of course, that I, that's what I get to know later. But at the beginning, I used to be an angry person who didn't trust anybody, including God himself. And so just to fast track the story a bit, because I really want to get to this incredible journey you're on, but you make your way to Kenya to be with your uncle and you find out that blood isn't thicker than water. After a couple of days, he doesn't want to have you in his life. Was that because he didn't have the resources or he just he lacked compassion or combination of the two? I think it's combination too. He didn't have resources. And I think for me, as I said, the, the most important thing that, yes, he turned me away, but it was a very good thing that he turned me away because I assumed that he accepted me and I stayed in his house and he never sent me to school. My life could have been gone to the waste. And I think he did the right thing. He said, listen, I can't be able to support you. You need to find your own way. And I think probably that helped me redirecting me to my path. And that path takes you over the next year to South Africa, which is where my wife was born. I'm curious what made you decide that South Africa was this magnet that somehow or other that you were willing to do whatever you could to get there because it wasn't an easy journey. It wasn't like you got on an airplane and flew there. Well, when my uncle rejected me, the night before I had a can of Coca-Cola, which was made in South Africa, and when he, of course, rejected me, I was very angry and I was very impulsive as a young child. And immediately I told him, I didn't want to tell him that I was desperate looking for a place. Then I tell him, don't worry, by the way, I was going to South Africa. But of course, I didn't know where South Africa was. I just know it was down south. And of course, I didn't even think of the distance. It wasn't really my problem. But I already made a promise I was going to go to South Africa and have to keep on to it. And that's when that night, I took a giant step and I made this step towards South Africa. Of course, it took four to five months, but I did arrive. Now, as part of your journey, you're offered a spot in the United Nations refugee camp. And the promise, if you wait around five years, you might be able to get to the United States. You turn this deal down and instead you choose to keep traveling towards South Africa. So what began is some brav- a can of Coke and some bravado to your uncle. You're on this quest. This could have been a major turning point in your life. Why did you choose to keep going to South Africa? And of course, thirdly, I wanted to have my destiny in my own hand. So I wasn't keen to be, be fed by UN and become part of statistics. And that's what drove me, wanted to find my own way and my path. Because sitting on the refugee camps alone at the age of 16, I would not have much in life. And I could have been a laborer in Canada and America 
and I would not have reached where I am today because I could have been 21 years old at that time. When we return, Dr. Taban gets another shot at school and he makes something very special out of it. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Joining me on Chatter That Matters is Dr. Emmanuel Taban. Denied school as a child, when he gets to South Africa, he not only finishes high school, he earns three medical degrees. So at age 17, you make your way to Joburg in South Africa, Johannesburg. You choose to pursue an education. Now, I mean, you've been five years since you were age 12 in school. How hard was it for you to go back and realize that, you know, when you should be graduating high school, you're basically just starting it? Well, it, it was difficult because I, I really, my school was not that good in South Sudan. But I mean, if you've been a street child for 18 months, you slept on the pavement, on the cold environment, the rain rains on you. How hard is it to read at the book? I mean, I could sit down and read the same thing over and over, all the night, until I get to understand. And what I did was to memorize each and every page until I understand it. And that's how it was. But I didn't have any choice, but never ever to give up. And you talk about in your book that these Catholic missionaries were more than just a place for you to learn. They almost played a parental role in your life, a very important role at that age. So what was that all about? Well, when I, when I was taken in, after being a street child for three days in Joburg, I was taken in and I was with Brother Peter, who was a German. And, he, you know, he, we have a routine. Where we wake up at six o'clock, six to go to prayers, then of course seven o'clock breakfast, then you do gardening from morning till five o'clock, you go for supper and everything. And you start things, you start seeing things working. They have enough food, but they work like they have nothing. And that told me like, how often do we actually work so in Africa, little so that we get enough to eat and after that we sit under the tree waiting until it's finished then start working. And that told me that perhaps, you know what? We didn't understand life. We think life is all about resting, but it's never to rest. It's about to keep on working and working. And they taught me the value of hard work. And of course, the most important is the honesty and have some integrity in yourself and work hard until you get the solution. And that's what Brother Peter given to me. Christianity is very much part of who you are. You learn about Islam as part of your strategy in terms of how to survive. And you come back, what's your feeling on religion now, going back into a situation where you're praying in the morning and such? Did, was it confusing to you or did out of both did you find beauty? I think religion, I think in, in religion, Africa had been misunderstood. So I still do, do pray. I'm still a Christian. But one thing I know that God has given us choice, choice to make decisions every day, every minute, every second, every year. It does not interfere with that. And that choice, I owe it as human. So everything that happened in my life, it's more to do with my choice that I make each and every day. So of course, prayers per se, was just there to really, to bless you. But then or day, you need to get up and act on the cho choices that you made. 
And I think for me, that's what religions mean to me, is to be able to, to make my own choice and not to depend on prayers. Prayers are there, but at the end of the day, I need to take a step. So where I'm fascinated about is this journey. You're still a teenager. You're back in a place where you can learn again. But rather than just learning, you know, basic math and reading and, and, you know, some education, you choose medicine, which is one of the toughest paths in terms of commitment and time and this fusion of science and empathy and everything that goes with it. How did that come about and who encouraged that dream alongside your dream? When I was seven years, there was a nurse who told me that I'll become a doctor. And those words, is stuck in my mind. And the problem, of course, at age of seven, I started believing in it, that I was gonna become a doctor. And when you believe in something, it becomes a power. And when I came to South Africa, I keep repeating this word that I wanna become a doctor. When I said my first matrix with South Africa Living School examination, I have not gotten a better marks, and I couldn't really go and do medicine. So I was given an option to do engineering. And what I did, I turned that down at the age of 20 and went back to school again and repeat my trick all over again at age of 20 to get a good marks to do medicine. So I just knew that medicine was my destiny. All of us, we have some destinies us. Our journey has been pre-planned by, by the most high. What we need to do is to take a step toward our journey. We are all special in our own way. And I just knew that medicine was the what can bring the best out of me. So you're seven years old when a nurse tells you that one day you're going to become a doctor. What did it feel like to graduate as a doctor? It was amazing. When I graduated, I was very excited, but I was very obsessed the fact that I didn't get cum laude because I missed cum laude with 2%. So that actually spoiled my graduation. I was very sulky throughout because I didn't get the major prize. And I thought that was very sad of me. I could have focused on the milestone that I, that actually I overcome, but I was obsessed with the things that I actually didn't was not worthy. Do you think that was a great gift for you that you've carried forward now that it's a little bit less about the accolades and the achievements that people know about and much more about what you're achieving that people don't know about? That's what it's taught me that, you know what, it's the accolades that's not mean much. It's really about what you can do and how much can you contribute to humanity? And I think for me, that was the lesson that I learned and probably helped me today because my focus, of course, change is all really more humanity. And from the day that I start practicing as doctors, I always focus my emphasis and focus on my patients. So I want to now turn our attention to, you know, you're a specialist in lungs and then this pandemic hits. That COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. We're getting a clearer picture of just how bad this could get. The modeling says new infections of COVID-19 could reach 60,000 a day by mid-December. And your approach becomes not only renowned in the places you're practicing medicine, but people all over the world start paying attention to what you're discovering. Now, this is a kid that wasn't that long ago sleeping as you said, you know, under benches and trying to hide from rain, you're now putting a dent in the universe. So tell me how that all happened. Do you think in some ways this was a journey that was always intended for you? Well, I just think that is part of my journey and part of my destiny. And also, I think more really probably also speak a lot about volume, about what I've been doing. And I always say there's one basic things in life. You need to know your basics. If you master your basics, it's easy for you to innovate in life. 
And of course, when COVID struck in, in Africa, that was on the 14th of February, everybody has told us that Africa will do the worst. Everybody might die because we didn't really have all the healthcare facilities, neither the resources to withstand the disease. And of course, when it arrived in South Africa, we were really clueless because always we have wasted, waited for the Western to provide us with solution. But that time, the problem that the Western didn't know much, neither do the Chinese, neither did America. Mortality was extremely very high. My ICU became extremely full with patients. I remember that I've read, I've read an article which was written on the, on the journal by one of the European Respiratory Society, where they actually classify patients with COVID-19 on life support into two, what they call the L-type and H-type. And what they're saying that the L-type are people that you put on life support, and most of them, they will do very well. They're easy to ventilate, and after five days, you take the other machine, they go home. And then there come the H-type, which will happen after seven days. Those people, their lungs become heavy, they're difficult to ventilate, their lungs become fibrotic, and then they die. And I remember very well, I was like, wow, that's amazing. But how do they die after seven days and develop lung fibrosis? Fibrosis should be developed over a long period of time, not over a short period of time. And that's, for me, it made me question. Taking me back to where I come from, I, I, I have issue with the trust. My journey told me not to trust anything. So that took me back not to trust everything. Then I said, okay, great. Of course, until I lost three of my patients, that after five to seven days, they start going downward, that one, then they die. And what happens that? Their heart rate and heart rate remain normal, but then their, their saturation level, the oxygen level, keep dropping, dropping while they're alive. After 20, then they go to arrest and die. And I thought, but this is something peculiar. Then I read a bit about those articles. Then I said, but maybe they are right. But then I thought, okay, you know what? If it's lung fibrosis, let me do bronchoscopy and do biopsies because there was nobody has done anything in the world and World Health Organization was very clear that bronchoscopy should not be performed in COVID-19 patients because increased mortality. So I said, you know what? Let me see what happened. Let me see, do biopsy. Maybe then I can give them antifibrotic therapy. And only when I put the bronchoscopy in, only I saw this world loop move like a lamb, like a socket. And I thought, but this could be a tumor or something. When I put this, a, a biopsy posep, then it was a mucus. So I took it out and the oxygen went back from 50 to 90. At the end, I've done almost up to 216 patients. And that's when I knew that, you know what, I think the literature, they have written it too early. And those classifications were done with somewhat observation. And I actually suggest on my paper that if there is such kind of classification which are not disputing them, then they need to add the third type, which we call M-type or mucus type. That for me, most of my patients survive. I have a very good outcome. In South Africa, I have the very out good outcome in malignant COVID-19 ICU on ventilated patients with excellent results. And of course, from that time, I never depend on, from the literature from another countries, what we do, you, you, everything you do, you read, and you make, you, you must interpret it and see what you can do. And how did the Western world react? Because right now, as everybody's looking in the rearview mirror, you know, whether the vaccines are effective, uh, there might have been medicines that countries that didn't have the resources of the Western world, approaches like yours, are they open-minded to looking at best practices around the world or do they just dismiss it because, well, that's Africa? Well, I, I think you're 100% right. There's, uh, look, Africans 
has always been the continent where nothing good come out of here, except only our resources. Everything else kind of Africa, nobody take you serious. And I remember very well, even if you're an African, you want to publish anything on the, on the Western uh, journals, they always you have to go through certain kind of very strict criteria as compared to Westerners. And sometimes, I mean, we have all the patients, we have all the diseases, but what, what is more credible was that up to now, I have not got a criticism from any of the Western media. And I think because they knew it was a fact. And then, of course, the second thing, few articles has come from, there was one on the journal in U.S., actually, that came and said, no, bronchoscopy, actually, and COVID-19 were safe. And few of them actually confirmed that the mucus plaque actually exists. But the reality that you cannot go and tell the public there that most people have died because of mucus plaque, because the World Health Organization has issued a wrong message. You know, I mean, how do you go and do that? That's why this silence. Nobody want to talk much about it. And do you think that the world needs to really open their minds that sometimes maybe the medicines that an indigenous cultures used for thousands of years or a drug that a, a poor nation can only afford versus expensive vaccines, that there's great learning to be found there? It should be a two-way thing. They need to understand what work in Africa and what work in the West. And of course, that's, uh, if you look most of the medication that currently being used, even the Western medication, they're all from plants, they're from herbs. So I'm not saying that you should be using medication that are not studied. I think we need to apply scientific knowledge and do research on most of the medication, but we need to give a benefit of doubts to most people like Africans and, and who, who probably might have something to offer to the rest of the world. In terms of the vaccines, of course, the vaccine work, there was some value in vaccines. In Africa, the vaccine didn't really play a key part in Africa. The reason that COVID-19 is a disease of people with comorbidities, disease of people above age of 45 to 50 who have most succumbed to COVID-19. So Africa had the youngest population. Hence, you haven't seen the mortality rate as compared to the rest of the world. So, so we didn't really have major issues. So the vaccine might not have changed so much in Africa. I'm interested now with all the accolades that you're getting in medicine and the work you're doing, you choose another lane that's very important to you. And we've talked about education and what's holding Africa back is education. And you're an ambassador for Rally to Read, a nonprofit organization promoting literacy in rural areas of South Africa. And we know that Nelson Mandela talks about education as this wonderful equalizer. So talk to me about what you're doing in, in that side of the world and why it's important to you, given how much demand there is for you to, to continue to pursue what you're doing in the medical world. I have traveled around the world. I've went to China. I went to America. I went to Europe. And I Africa. And you get to understand that human beings are never different. We are all equal. And if you look at the background of education in Africa, we've been we're really behind on the education, all aspects. You could say everything that you want to do, say, Africa in terms of education, we are we punch below the weight of Westerns and Chinese. And our education that we always get, I mean, most of Africans go to Europe, to Canada, and get education. But when they come, they can apply the same education in Africa because they lack their skill. They can't transform that education into their skills. So hence, in my life, I've decided that I need to champion the need of education. Because if you educate a child, even a girl, you educate it from basic education, they become a better mothers for their children. And the society improve. So if you educate anybody, you, you change the circumstance of their lives forever. And I think for me, 
I will always want to advocate for education and I will spend the rest of my life try to build schools and become ambassador of education to make sure that every black child in respect of their background should be given access to education irrespective of their circumstance. And in South Africa, that is not being done because the schooling in the township is still does not reflect the society that we live in as compared to the schools that are currently Model C school. And I just think like that's the worst way of discrimination. You can't discriminate a child who is born today and give him the worst education and the child that born in a better society get a better education. Why can't you mix them, put them together? And then let them learn together. Because if you can give that child a better education after high school, you give them an equal playground and they will prosper. They will never be dependent. And we could reduce crime. We could be able to explore our resources. Africa has a lot of resources, but those resources, you are, you are unlikely to see them until you are educated, you have your skills. And I always say those resources like a GPS. If you don't know how to use GPS, you won't be able to go where you're going. You need to know how to use it. That's why for me, education is a powerful tool. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. If you look in the world, there's always something for someone out there. We don't actually need to fight for the same thing because there's so much out there. The issue is about really pinpointing what is your G-spot and get it and you'll be done. And people don't need to hurt each other because we will all die. So there's no need for me to cut your life short. But if we reach each other, hold each other's hands and focus on our ability, the world will become a better place. Joining me on Chatter That Matters is Dr. Emmanuel Taban. Yes, a doctor. Denied a high school education. When he gets to South Africa, he not only finishes that, but three medical degrees and becomes instrumental in treating COVID patients. You write this incredible book, The Boy Who Never Gave Up, an autobiography. What are you hoping the reader takes away from reading it? One, that you are never a victim until you accept it to become a victim. When you become a victim, you will never progress. And the second thing that the reader needs to, to get from it, anything that happened in your life, you have some part contributed toward it happening, whether good or bad. So that means you must look at your, your, your contribution to the problems, and if possible, if you can change that, you can learn from it. And today, I take this from you for anything that happened to me. I will never blame someone for whatever happened to me in my life. But I blame myself, and that's the only way that I could learn and become a better person. If you saw the people that tortured you back then, today, what would you say to them? I'll probably shake their hands, and I will say thank you for teaching me the hardest lessons, and today I'm a different person. In 2021, New African Magazine names you African Person of the Year. How did that make you feel? Look, it, it was amazing. It was great to be acknowledged. You know, it's, it's a title that you don't contest for it. You never audition for it. And people recognize you. Out of blue, you become visible instead of invisible. And I think for me, I'm always very grateful for it. And I hope most children will learn that. We need to focus on doing the best. And the world is watching. You don't need to do anything to become recognized. But if you do something out of passion, with determination consistent inside of you, the world will recognize you. And that's what I believe in. You know, you often talk about your life as this mountain climb. And many would say that that award 
you're at the summit, but you don't strike me as ever finding that summit, that you're always looking at something next to climb and, and feed the curiosity you had as a 12-year-old and refired again as a 17-year-old. What's next for you? What are the next summits that you're looking to go after? I'm 45 years old, so I'm one of my second half life. My second journey begins. My first half journey, I was busy surviving, studying, learning, and all that, and I've done that well. But now, I'm a second part journey of purpose. I question myself, what's my purpose? And today, I'm starting a new journey in South Sudan. I want to give back to something in South Sudan. And if you, you know in South Sudan, if you read about South Sudan in Canada, they tells you most of the news you will get is from UN. How people are dying in South Sudan because lack of food, hunger, and famine. And I have taken a sole responsibility to start a company to invest in agriculture. The problem in Africa, we have about 60% of the world arable land, and only 25% of it is being cultivated. In South Sudan, we have about 621 million hectares of land, and we only occupy 27% in housing and small subsistence farming. So we have no single commercial farmer. And the reason is that because they have no equipment or machineries to farm. So I'm starting using my influence to rare resources to be able to buy tractors, fertilizers, and get experts from South Africa, Europe, and Canada who can farm properly and create education to farm, producing food, at the same time transferring skill to the young South Sudanese and hopefully make create a food security. And perhaps if everybody in South Sudan time is a fool, are not hungry, then maybe we will not fight. And hopefully that whatever profit comes, because I want to build schools. I don't believe in donation. I don't believe in that somebody must give me money. I'm going to raise that money in South Sudan and try to see whether I can be able to build those schools. And that's what I need to owe to people of South Sudan. Do you ever see yourself in politics and leading a country versus just simply sort of leading an economic renaissance? I think I'll go to an economic renaissance instead of politics. I don't think that I'm a politician because I like action. I like to see results. I'm a doctor. I don't nurse disease. I treat disease. You know, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways, and there's so many. I'm going to try to do my best with this. But the first one that I love is you're never a victim unless you believe you're a victim, which I think is just a, a great lesson in life. The second is I think you were given a gift being denied education at 12, being tortured. And I know that sounds horrific to say that was a gift, abandoned once again by your uncle and fighting this fighting spirit to keep going. And any time there was even a, a rung on the ladder that could be higher than anybody would imagine, you found a way to reach for it, reading that page over and over again until you understood it, going back to school to get them to pass it to the level to go into medicine. You're just an absolute inspiration. But I think the one that I like the most is this, the underpinning of humanity. If we find a way to create circumstances positive that has purpose where people can work together that you're right maybe the world can stop fighting each other and we can celebrate the beauty of this planet and the beauty of each other and i can see why you don't want to go into politics because as you said you're after results but i hope that you're the economic renaissance that you bring to south sudan is no different than the renaissance you brought 
through COVID that you continue to make this wonderful dent in the universe because you're a very special human being. I am very honored to have you on Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Thank you so much, Thomas, Tony. And that's for me. Life is a journey and every journey must have purpose. I'm going to live my purpose until the day that I depart this world. I'm not sure I have to introduce her. When you hear her voice, if you're a regular to my show, you know that it's the one and only Amy Deacon, CEO and founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. She's my go-to on so many different areas of humanity, how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. Amy Deacon, I'm no longer going to give you a trophy for most appearances because like Wayne Gretzky, no one is ever going to catch you now on Chatter That Matters. That's so often you're with me. My absolute pleasure, Tony. Happy to be here. The story that you just heard is so powerful. Dr. Taban loves school. Suddenly the school closes because there's no money. There's a civil war. His father's killed. Then he's captured. He's tortured. Fast forward, becomes a doctor. Fast forward is one of the leading minds in terms of how to treat COVID and becomes the Af- one of the African persons of the year. So my, my, you know, that's the hero's journey in its, in its entirety. But the first thing I want to ask you is how, how is it possible that someone's dreams are taken away with them at such a young age and not only taken away becomes a living nightmare? All of this, he still has within him the ability to pursue a dream. There's two things about his story that stick out. And so one is obviously his inner workings where he is committed to his own survival. Sometimes I think when we're in the thick of trauma, we don't see it. We're just getting by day by day. And I'm sure there were months and perhaps even years where he was just getting by day by day, but it really reveals the human spirit and that we are wired to survive. That's number one. But the second thing that was so interesting about his story is that he encountered people that believed in him. He encountered people that wanted to invest in somebody that had previously just been passed up basically by life. And so to me, it's, it's also a tale of the power of human connection and somebody saying, I'm so sorry what you've been through. I still see light in you. I still see hope in you. I still see possibility in you. Let's go. It's interesting you say that now. And there was a sentence that he spoke that just came roaring back, which was a nurse when he was seven or eight and said, you're going to grow up to be a doctor. What advice can you give to parents? I just did a show with Jesse Palmer where he talks about not only did he dream big, but he surrounded himself with people that believed in him, especially his parents. When you're a parent, one of the best gifts that you can give your child is just the gift of curiosity and really seeing where do they light up? What do they do that just, you know, it it brings them meaning. It brings them fulfillment, not just doing anything with your life, but doing something that feels like it's, it's your calling. It, it's something that's, that's personally and professionally fulfilling for you. I know so many dentists, doctors that are doing what they're doing because they were told to do it. And there's no spark. There's no passion. There's no fire. That's a tough way to live. Amy, many Canadians are in their own prison. Bars made of negativity, a growing sense of impossibility. There's a reason for that. The uncertainty, the headwinds. But what advice can you offer for them to kick away those bars and focus on the possibility and the positivity versus surrendering to the negativity? I think one of the big barriers that we have, you know, in North America is that we're so connected with other people's lives and we're so disconnected from our own path. We're so caught up in comparison. We're so caught up in never feeling enough and looking at what other people have that we don't possess. And it it becomes a really slippery slope where we start to adopt lifestyles that perhaps don't feed us, but perhaps it will give us the attention that we want. And when we look at the stories that you're, you know, presenting the world, they're probably not scrolling on Instagram. There's something about being 
in survival mode that forces people to literally just focus on one step at a time and what can I do with what I have? And I think the same is true for Canadians, but sometimes we really have to disconnect from all that noise, from all that chaos and really look at our situation and figure out what do I have to do? How do I put myself in the best position mentally, physically, financially, whatever it may be to get through this next season of my life? But I think sometimes when all of our basic needs are taken care of, we get trapped. We get trapped in all the extra stuff and and there can be really something about it that robs us of life. Where we're going through the motions, we're still alive, but on the inside, like the fire's gone. So we got to get back to that fire. And I think a great way of doing it is to be of service to others. Lean into your community, lean into volunteer work, lean into opportunities where you get to live a life that is not just about you, but is about connecting with other people. There is such meaning and fulfillment and purpose in that. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.